Welcome to this edition of the Baseball America College podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining us, as always, is Joe Healy. It is March uh, 26 as we record this, and you know the College World Series was officially canceled two weeks ago. Uh, obviously, that was a, uh, a sad day around college baseball, but I think the the days and weeks that have followed have, have shown us why uh, such drastic measures were taken and why the college baseball season has been canceled due to the novel coronavirus pandemic, uh, which now has much of the country in uh, stay-at-home orders or shelter-in-place, depending on uh, what, what state or, or municipality you're in. Our offices at Baseball America are in Durham, North Carolina, and our shelter-in-place order goes into effect uh, this evening. We're obviously a little behind some of the other other places around the country, but uh, Joe, we are we are firmly in quarantine mode. The office has been shut for about two weeks now, and uh, I know some people are going a little stir crazy without baseball. We're we on this podcast are, are trying to keep baseball going, uh, both in terms of just reporting on college baseball around the country, but of course we also have our uh, ongoing series of of watching old games on YouTube, and then we're, we come on the podcast and we're going to talk about them. And the first one of those we're going to do is today we're going to take a look back at the 1995 National Championship game between Cal State Fullerton and and USC. But Joe, before we get down to business on that, just uh, give us a, give us an update on, on Joe Healy's quarantine life. Doing pretty well, surviving. Uh, the sun, as I look outside right now, is out today, which earlier this week, that was, it was making it a little tougher this week. It was gray skies, weather was not great. It was kind of that threatening terrain thing all day where you, you know, you weren't sure if it was going to or not. So it's just kind of gross. The sun is helping today for sure. Uh, I also went on my, you know, we're doing all the right things here. Me and my fiance at home, we're, we're staying at home. We're, we're, we're hitting Netflix and Hulu hard. I'm, uh, you know, watching these old games on YouTube or watching highlight clips on YouTube or uh, some of the, the uh, you know, the CBS has been doing these NCAA basketball tournament games periodically. So that's been kind of nice. So, you know, we're surviving. But I, I went out today for the uh, my weekly grocery trip and trying to limit those, obviously, went to, went to Target. And, uh, man... I uh, I felt so a couple last week I went grocery shopping felt a little meh about my trip you know I, I stocked up as much as I could but they were out of some stuff that I that I would have ideally wanted came home with with not quite as much as I, I would have liked to have gotten but I really hit it out of the park with this Target trip I was feeling good about it and the capper on that was uh, I found toilet paper I was able to buy a package of toilet paper uh, you know we were lucky that we had stocked up. Um, you know, we had uh, we had stocked up just kind of randomly uh, before all of this kind of hit. And so we, we've been fortunate that we haven't had to worry about it. We were still not in a place where we were really worried about it. But it was just like it was literally the last package on the shelf at Target. And there were people standing in front of it. So like but I saw they already had toilet paper in their cart and Target is limiting to one. I don't know if that's Target in general or this tar- how it's done. But this Target is limiting to one per customer. I saw they already had some in their cart. So I was like, okay, I'm good there. So I had to kind of strategically go around them on the next aisle to come up behind them to try to get it. So I didn't create a log jam in front of the aisle. Cause you know, we're trying to social distance with our carts and, and all that jazz. And 
So I'm trying to be cognizant of that. And uh, but I, I tell you, when I got out of sight of everybody, when I went to that aisle, like I scooted. I didn't. I wouldn't say I ran or like power walked, but I definitely scooted to get around the other aisle to get this toilet paper. And when I grabbed that toilet paper and put it in my cart, I'm not kidding when I tell you it sparked joy in me that I have not felt since probably before this whole ordeal. Like, and I came home and I like celebratorily, I don't know if that's a word, celebratorily, I, I, I put it above my head as if I was some sort of like Olympic champion holding my medal aloft. Um, and, you know, like that sounds, I mean that as a joke. On the other hand, though, like it really does kind of give you that perspective people always talk about where like it's the small things in life and being appreciative for what you have is that like I was able to get this package of toilet paper and like it sparked legitimate joy, like not anything manufactured or, you know, anything like that. It was like legitimately like, oh, thank goodness I haven't seen toilet paper on a shelf in, in weeks. And I've not done the thing where I wake up early and go to the store and wait in line to get in or anything like that. It hasn't come to that. I've been going in normal times, and that, that's part of why I haven't seen it. But just to see it and get it, and it was the last package, and, you know, had, like, an elderly individual also been hovering the aisle, I would have let them, or, uh, you know, somebody with kids, like, all that jazz. But there was nobody around, so I felt like, okay, you know, I'm going to go ahead and get this toilet paper. But it was, uh, it was, so I say all that to say, big day for Joe today. Big day for Joe <laughs> and his quarantine life today. Uh, that was uh, definitely a highlight of my two weeks in quarantine. One thing I was thinking about though, and before I get too off, off, off topic here, but um, one of the things that, that we've been doing is watching a lot of these old games and a thought occurred to me and I've not even really checked up on this. So maybe I don't know how much ESPN holds on to this stuff, but one of the inherent problems, right? With watching old games is you're removing the element of knowing what happens or not knowing what happens. And that's a big part of watching sports, right? You have no idea what's going to happen. And as much as we watch these old games, and I'm really enjoying watching these old games, especially the ones that are, that are uh, you know, 15, 20 years old, I'm enjoying that. But, they're, you know, they're a little bit lacking. It's not quite the same. One thing I hadn't thought to do, and I, I might urge our listeners to do this, too, is I have not done this yet. I, I'm interested in doing so. Is If you're an ESPN Plus subscriber, or even if you just, you know, some of the things on Watch ESPN might be available to you if you have a cable pack subscription or YouTube TV or Sling or what have you. Like, I'm kind of interested to go back and watch some games from just earlier this season. Uh, because, you know, when you and as, as you know, like when we're out covering games, like it's hard to watch it. A lot of other stuff going on, maybe at the end of the night or maybe before your game, you're covering starts. But typically that's hard to do. And so there's just a ton of games and not just from the SEC, ACC, et cetera. All that's also true. But there's a lot of small conference games out there or were out there on ESPN Plus. Again, I don't know how long they're archiving. Um but as long as they're still out there, that would be – I'm actually kind of excited to do that because I don't know how most of those games ended. I couldn't even tell you who won most of those games. And so, you know, it, that still won't be the same. Um, but I don't know. It might add a little bit of uncertainty to the situation. And so, you know, I won't I won't name specific teams because I don't want to be disrespectful about, like, you know, this, this game between these two random teams isn't all that exciting. But, like, it might not be. But it's at least baseball that I've not seen before. And I think there might be something – to that. So that's something I'm kind of interested to try. Maybe I'll report back on one of our next podcasts, how that's going. I, I might find that they're not archiving that much and there's not much out there. I guess I'll, I'll find out. Yeah. I have not, I've not really gone looking for those yet. I, I, I have access to, to those games if assuming they're still there, but I, since, since the season 
got shut down. I don't think I've gone into the college baseball tab on ESPN's app, partially on my Roku, partially just because I feel like um, it's sad in a way still. Maybe I'll get to a point where it's not that. You know, I, I would be interested in, in watching, you know, some of the games I, I haven't seen, except that, like, I don't know. That, 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 that does it matter what Alabama looked like uh, on some random weekend? You know, I maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. I we'll we'll, we'll see. But right now, I'm in a point where I I don't want to watch uh, those games. May, maybe that'll change down the line. But right yeah. now, I think it's it still feels a little fresh. Yeah, I mean that's a good point. I I've actually. I found, you know, I follow a lot of college basketball media, like on Twitter and just in general. And I found there kind of are two camps. There are the people who are all in on rewatching recent games, doing the simulations of games, talking about the, the, the would-be bracket. And I understand some of that you just have to do for, for content purposes. But there are people who seem very into that. And there are those who are like, eh, I don't know, that kind of hurts. And I agree. Like, if the season had ended right before regionals, I don't know that I would be all that interested in like gaming out who would have again maybe for content purposes. I'll be honest, I'd be like, I'd be more interested then. I would be because I'd have more information. Now it's just like, well, I could watch this non-conference game between two teams that are honestly probably a little mismatched and like maybe I learned something, maybe I don't, but you know, who cares? Whereas if if it was at the end of the year, I would be a little more like, yeah, like Florida was trending up or, you know, UCLA was, was, you know, really, really streaking towards, towards the finish line. And, you know, this other team was limping and like, who knows how that would have gone. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly the pain factor is higher though. When you get to that, 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 <laughs> you know, that that's 100% true. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're all talking about these uh, hypotheticals that obviously will, <laughs> we, we don't have to play out that one, although we do have our own version of that with trying to determine, uh, you know, whether or, not, whether or not we're ready to watch 2020 games yet or not. <laughs> so uh, because I am uncertain that I'm ready to wa- rewatch 2020 games or, or watch 2020 games that I didn't see, uh, we went all the way back to 1995 for our first uh, one of these classic uh, rewatch watch games. Uh, and, and we found Cal State Fullerton playing USC with uh, the College World Series on the line. Obviously, back then, the College World Series final was just a winner-take-all championship game. It was not the best of three series that it is today. That change happened, I believe, in 2004, uh, maybe 2003. It was this century, however. And so this this game was for, for it all. We, you had Cal State Fullerton which was the number one overall seed. They had swept through Omaha to reach the, the championship game. USC had to come out of the loser's bracket after losing their opening game, and then they uh, went through and won four straight. They beat Tennessee twice, and they beat Miami twice to get to the, the, the championship game against Fullerton. Two rivals, they played twice during the regular season, as, as they still do, and it was a uh, it was a fun game. Two big time programs, two big time coaches in Augie Garrido and Mike Gillespie. Some big time stars in this game: Jeff Jenkins, Chad Muller, Jock Jones, Gabe Alvarez. All played for USC. Fullerton, Mark Kotze, one of the greatest college baseball players of all time, had a starring role 
in this game and in the World Series in general. Ted Silva, who is our guest today, started on the mound for Fullerton and went seven innings. Uh, and, and it was uh, it was an entertaining game. Joe, you you uh, kind of helped pick this game a little more. So is there anything you wanted to mention about about this game and, and, and why we why we landed on this game? I think it's just such a quintessential 19 or in mid 90s in general, mid 90s college baseball game in that, you know, this was kind of the beginning of the second peak for USC. They had the peak in the 70s when they were best program in the country at a time when, of course, at a time when college baseball is not what it is today, but but still. But Mike Gillespie had kind of led USC back. I think a lot of people forget that between that peak in the 70s and the peak in the 90s, um, USC wasn't that good. Uh, they had kind of struggled through the 80s. Um, and then on the other side, you had Fullerton, which was kind of, uh, you know, the team that in a lot of ways was kind of filling that vacuum left by USC out on the West Coast. They had really become a power. And Augie Garrido had an interesting history with that program where he had been the head coach there and then he went to Illinois and then he had returned. And um, they were obviously rolling at this time. And, um, you know, and, and Ted mentions this in the interview, but, uh, you know, they had been to Omaha several times in the recent past. And so they'd kind of knocked on the door and this was them kind of banging the door in. So, but it just felt very of the moment. Uh, there were no fluke. This was not a fluke on either side. It wasn't a Cinderella story on either side. These were two quintessential 90s programs doing battle. And I, I kind of like it as a snapshot of, of college baseball at a time when there was still uh, the, the, the power power structure in college baseball was very Southeastern and very West coast. And the West coast has obviously now taken a bit of a step back in that pecking order, but this was kind of at the height of that. So I just really like it as, it's almost like if you were to put college baseball games in museums and, and kind of uh, immortalize them, I think this is, would be a great game for this period of time in college baseball for, for all of those reasons on top of the, the ones you named, just that it was a great player and, and coaching matchup as well. So Fullerton went on to win the game 11-5. to It was back and forth kind of in the early innings, and then Fullerton really kind of pushed it out and blew the game open late. The final score is not necessarily indicative of how close this game was. Uh, they added some some late insurance that, that really uh, you know, allowed them to, to open up that, that healthy six-run cushion. Um, so to help us get into this to to break it down and, and and to relive it we are going to speak with ted silva who like i mentioned started this game for fullerton and is now the usc pitching coach uh interestingly the usc coaching staff right now includes ted silva uh gabe alvarez is usc's recruiting coordinator as he has been for something like a decade now uh, and, and of course he he was hitting three hole for usc on that day and Jason Gill, who is USC's head coach, uh, was a Fullerton player in 94 and then in 95 uh, is is on staff as, as a grad assistant. So three guys, the, the three coaches at USC, the three full time coaches at USC right now, all were there in Omaha uh, on, on this day 25 years ago, which I think is is pretty cool uh, and kind of an enduring legacy of this game. So let's get to it. Let, let's get uh, Ted Silva in here and let's get to uh, to his thoughts on that championship game 25 years ago. 
Today on the Baseball America College podcast, we are very happy to welcome in Ted Silva, current USC pitching coach, but for the purposes of our discussion today, uh, more importantly, former Cal State Fullerton All-American pitcher. Uh, Ted, obviously we're going to get into this 1995 uh, College World Series final here, but uh, just how are you doing and, and, and how, uh, how have you been handling uh, you know, the, the shutdown of the 2020 season? Well, I think I speak for everyone when we're trying to stay busy and trying to stay safe and trying to stay sane all at the same time and, and function at home like a like like everybody else. It's a little tricky at times, but it's been nice being around the family and um, and just being home for a little bit, I guess. Yeah, I, we're, so we're, we're doing our part to stay sane, I guess, by watching old baseball games, which I suppose some people might look at as a little insane, but... Uh, <laughs> You know, today we're gonna we're gonna look back on that 1995 College World Series final that was Cal State Fullerton against USC, uh, which I guess now has an interesting personal twist for for you. But uh, you know, back then was just a, a nice rivalry game in Omaha with uh, with everything on the line. Do you uh, have have you since then gone back and, and looked at any of these College World Series games or, or thought back to to that time in your career? You know, I think a lot of times when, when that game comes up, it's, it's, it did come up when I first got to USC, no question about that, uh, with our other assistant, Gabe Alvarez, on, on, on the other side of the field. So we did reminisce a little bit about the game. And every now and then when you meet or when you hear from friends or, you know, somebody's reaching out about a, a certain player that, that you know of, and it's just nice to look back and, and enjoy that, that day and, and I haven't really sat down and watched the entire game, so to speak. So every now and then I'll get a highlight here, highlight there. And, you know, I, I think some guys on our pitching staff or even our team alone like to look it up and kind of laugh at it and, and joke about it. And it was kind of funny. So looking back 25 years ago, it, yeah, it was a lot. I was a lot different back then. And it's just kind of nice to have. You, um, you started your career at Fullerton pitching out of the bullpen. You then... Uh, after your sophomore year went with USA and you were still pitching out of the bullpen and then you transitioned into the rotation and you were an all-American I guess you finished that year at 18 and one uh, what kind how, how easy was that transition from relieving to starting for you well I think it's a lot of ways uh, the biggest the biggest obstacle was just you know the pitch count wise and and you know building arm strength but but I think when you had the the type of offense and defense that we had that we could roll out there each and every day we were going to win a lot of games I mean I think we probably scored almost 10 runs a game which gives you a, a fighting chance to win a, a big part of those games and and I think that was our mindset as we continued through the season was just you know as long as we kept us in the game through strikes our defense was going to be pretty impressive and we were going to score runs so uh, it really uh, just the pitch count and, and the stamina more than anything. Before we move on to talking about the championship game specifically, I actually want to go back to your first start of that CWS uh, when you pitched against Stanford. And, and you got hit around a little bit, but you, you guys came back and ended up winning that game. So I'm curious, once you started that game and moved on to the rest of the CWS, would you say that was a mental thing to overcome that you had gotten hit around a little bit? Or would you say it was more of, um, a confidence builder that, hey, look, you know, we're facing really good competition here and I didn't have my best start, but, you know, all's well that ends well. We end up winning that game. I'm curious where you landed after that first start moving forward. 
Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, I did get hit a little around that game as well as a championship game. And, and you got to give credit to the hitters. I mean, those are good hitters. Those are good lineups. They're, they're in Omaha for a reason. And, you know, facing Stanford with, you know, you can go down that lineup. You saw who's in the lineup. I mean, it's it's not going to be easy to hold down a team like that. And at the end of the day, if, if we were able to um, keep it close, and as you know, that old park, would uh, it would be a little offensive at times, uh, along with the bats and, and whatnot. Um, it, it became an offensive game. And my job was to go out there, give us a chance to win, and get deep into the game. And, and with that comeback win, and, and just kind of catapulted us into the next three games. You, uh, the, the, that USC lineup was so good in, in so many ways. You, you had some big leaguers in there. Uh, you had Gabe Alvarez some, in there. Some. <laughs> I, I mean, it's littered. With big leaguers. <laughs> it is. I mean, there's Jock Jones, there's Chad yes. Moeller, there's Jeff yes. Jenkins, yeah. um, you know, and, and Gabe Alvarez sitting right in front of them. And, and those are those are the ones that I remember. And um, I mean, what what was the game plan uh, when you were looking at it the night before once you realized that it was them and not, not Miami? I, you know, it, we really, you know, back then it, it wasn't a big scouting report. We knew them right They're right down the street. Uh, we had competed against each other. Um, throughout the season, throughout the year. So we were pretty familiar with, with the team itself. And, and at that point, we weren't too concerned about the opponent. It was just us going out there and doing what we've been doing for you know, the last part of that season. We were on a pretty good run, and, and we really didn't let too much get in our way and, and um, really get uh, too involved in so much of a scouting report rather than just go out there and be ourselves. Who in that? I'm curious, uh, you know, maybe, you know, uh, as long as it's been now since that game, maybe you can go back and, 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 and think about this a little differently than you would have coming out of it immediately. But obviously there, there are a number of good answers here. Who in that USC lineup scared you the most? I guess the obvious answer is Jeff Jenkins, you know, the guy swinging <laughs> out of his swinging out of his shoes every other pitch. I mean, was it him? Was it someone else? I'm just curious, like when you think back on that, who's the guy who still gives you nightmares? I, of course, Jeff Jenkins, if anybody, you know, they like to remind me of the swing he took off me. And I think, Back then, that the zoo was outside the right field wall, and he hit it out of the stadium into the zoo at some point. But, but again, he got a guy like Gabe Alvarez in the lineup, who was a three-time All-American, who, thank God, got himself out rather than me actually getting him out. Um, and, and again, you kind of gotta pick your poison when you're going after those guys. And you know, I got hit around by that lineup too, give up a few home runs that I'm always reminded of. But at the end of the day, you know, I got us deep enough into the game where our offense showed up, and we put our you know, we put up some runs, but it was really hard to find one through nine, um, you know, sort of an easy out in that lineup. They were just as impressive as anybody else we faced along the way. Tell us a little bit about that. I mean, you, that, the ball was flying out that day. On top of that, you've got the pressure of the championship game. You've got a great lineup. And, you know, you go out and give some runs up early on. Tell me a little bit about the discussion that was going on between yourself and, and George and, and Augie in the dugout and kind of what you guys were talking about to get you a little bit back on track. Was it just as simple as, hey, keep throwing and, you know, your offense has you? I mean, was it as simple as that or were there other things going on there? I, it was pretty simple. Um, I wasn't coming out of the game anytime soon. And everybody on the bench had my back. And it was pretty impressive just the way we rallied around each other. They they knew I didn't have my best stuff that day, and it was pretty obvious. But at the end, we continued to just fight. I mean, and that's what we were all about. It was a, we were going to compete you for all nine innings, and we were going to get after it, and um, you were going to have to beat us for nine. And we put constant pressure on them. And again, we were we were working with a tremendous tremendous confidence level at that time, where we thought we were unbeatable, no matter who we played. 
Um, it didn't really matter if it was SC or anyone else. I, we sort of handled business along the way. And, and, you know, as the game went on, it, I probably got a little more irritated, a little more pissed off and, you know, just tried to put my foot in the ground and say, okay, well, I just got to right the ship and, and give her, give the boys a chance. You, you, you mentioned, mentioned that. that. Oh, go ahead, Teddy. You mentioned that the, the, just the, the level uh, that you guys were playing at, you know, it was viewed as coming into the season as, as maybe it would be a bit of a rebuild uh, for, for Fullerton. <laughs> and, you know, Augie, even in the post-game interview, was talking about the talent on the team maybe wasn't, uh, you know, at, at the highest level, although he did say that with a wink. Was that something that you guys were, were thinking about or talking about or felt, or was that more outside narrative to kind of play up underground, underdog, you know, Fullerton's the little guy, <laughs> even while you were the number one overall seed? Well, if you look back at, what we returned from the pitching staff from the year before where we were, we were in Omaha in 94 and, and lost in the semis. And we lost a big, a big chunk of our lineup and our entire weekend rotation. So for him to say that early in the season, I mean, yeah, he's just going basing it off of what he saw and what the roster looked like with a bunch of new names and new faces and new bodies. And who knew what we could do? Nobody did. Right. So all we knew was we better show up to practice every day and compete against the game and and there wasn't a day that went by where we you know just sort of went through the motions i mean all you wouldn't allow that neither would george or rick and uh it was just a mindset that that's instilled that you take the ball or you go out there and compete for nine innings no matter who you're playing against so you know it, it was a complete rebuild and the fact that everybody came together is just credit to the coaching staff and trying to create, well, they've created such a great culture over there that you just start plugging in pieces and not necessarily a rebuild, but a reload, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the the development of, I guess, Mark Kotze, among other players, was a, a big part of that. In the championship game, he got you some early runs. Uh, you know, he hits two home runs, and then he ultimately <laughs> comes on and relieves you. Uh, was, was baseball always as easy for, for Mark as he made it look that day? Yeah, when you have Superman in the lineup, um, <laughs> unless they're throwing kryptonite up there, I mean, he, no, there's nobody stopping him, as everybody saw. Um, and again, he took the pressure off everybody, right? It was him, and and everybody else filled their roles and, and produced at a high level. But again, we're talking about a legendary collegiate baseball player that went on to have an unbelievable uh, major league career. And with that guy in the lineup, I mean, you talk about taking the pressure off you. Holy cow, not to mention hitting two home runs in the third and and doing what he did <laughs> that entire season. I mean, my goodness. Yeah, it was just a lot of fun when you look back and go, wow, that was pretty impressive what he did. I think one of the more impressive things is I think we look at that the team now and, and we see, you know, a guy like Mark Kotze obviously was the headline name there. But when you look up and down the rest of the roster, it's not, you know, kind of the same deal where USC has big leaguer, big leaguer, big leaguer. It was kind of that classic Fullerton team that wasn't necessarily made up of the biggest names. I mean, who on that team other than Kotze and, and yourself were were kind of catalysts for you guys? Who do you look back on 20 some odd years later and say that that was the guy that really kind of drove the bus and stirred the drink for us? Well, th there's a big, uh, big, big piece of that that puzzle that that um, that gets overlooked for I don't know why, but not within the Fullerton family is DC Olson, our first baseman. Um, the man went to the World Series three out of four years, played a national championship game in his freshman year in 1992, and um, to have that senior leadership back and and just basically uh, 
gather up all the new faces and new guys and instill the way we were going to do work. And uh, having that rock and that lineup, um, as well as on the field each and every day, I mean, that was, that was our leader as well. I mean, he was a big, huge part of, of us being who we were and the mindset and the attitude we had to have each day. And so DC Olson, definitely, if you look back at that guy's career, not too many guys are going to the World Series back then, three out of four years. So, yeah, definitely DC. You uh, you mentioned you didn't have your best stuff that day. Uh, there was no radar gun for most of the broadcast. What was your best stuff, and, and what do you think you were throwing? That day? <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness they didn't have one. I'm sure it didn't matter at that point either. It was just about throwing it up there, getting it across the plate, and hopefully hitting them at people and keeping a few in the yard. But um, I, you know, I wasn't a very big guy, and um, I can't say strength and conditioning had a big role that it does nowadays. But, um, you know, I was probably maybe in the mid to upper 80s at best, and I would just mix in a breaking ball when need be. And uh, just, again, go out there, and my job was to get us deep in the game and give us a chance. But, yeah, it wasn't my stuff wasn't very impressive, I mean, in my first and last start in the World Series. But your job is to go out there and get the job done no matter what. I wanted to ask you real quick on one of the guys that actually settled the game down for USC was Seth Etherton. And at the time he wasn't what Seth Etherton would become, you know, a few years down the road, he became great college player. One of the all time greats, uh, especially just among guys who were great in college. Do you have any memory of what hitters were saying when they came back into the dugout? Because he really did a good job of kind of settling that game down where you guys could have run away with it. And I'm curious if there was any, any inkling that, you know, just from the feedback you were getting from your guys who had, who had faced him, you know, that uh, this guy was, was pretty good beyond what the numbers suggested he was that year specifically. Yeah. It's, our, our guys weren't, didn't get caught up in there. They were, they weren't a very high low team and they knew they, they could take on water, take on punches and because they knew they'd be able to dish them out, but they knew they were, they were going to have to compete against Seth and, and that Seth did what Seth can do. I mean, we know what he's capable of now. And uh, that that should be no shock to anybody that he went out there and held us down and, and gave him a chance. So, you know, it was more about having seen a lot of good pitchers that year. And our guys knew basically how to attack those guys. It's just going to have to wear them out. Right. You just kind of wear them out, wear them out. And hopefully you get some, you know, later in the game. So in the ninth inning, uh, the camera cuts to, to the dugout, I think, after Katze gets the first out. And you're in the dugout, and there's somebody else. I don't know who it is, but you you, you like throw some horns up in front of your head, and like you, you like <laughs> are headbutting. What oh, what was going on there? <laughs> oh boy. Well, we had a, a player on the team by the name of Rob Matos, as as tough and as scary a guy uh, you wouldn't want to meet off the field. But he, he was our toughness, and he it was a lot of fun, and we had a lot of inside jokes, and and uh, you know it was more about the bull charge, and he 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 did something earlier in that year that that kind of loosened us up and, you know, for us to, to throw up those horns was, it was more about just uh, Rob's mindset of be, being fearless and just, geez, I could, <laughs> that's funny. You bring that up and just, just seeing everybody, you know, pulling on the same side of the rope with that sign and the togetherness and the excitement, because when those things came out, it was pretty much game over. The uh, for my money, the, the dog pile you guys had was an all-time great dog pile. It was uh, really, really high quality. What do you remember about that dog pile? Well, you don't remember much until you see it, like you said. And then I think, basically, watching Augie drive his scooter out and just, you know, as happy and excited everybody was, everybody forgets Augie ruptured his Achilles that year and was was getting around on crutches in a, in a scooter. 
So the poor guy couldn't even celebrate with us, but we had a chance to celebrate with him. But just after the fact and seeing the pictures, it's more about just the excitement in everybody's face, of course. And I, I really, I probably blacked out either lack of oxygen or too excited, one of the two. But um, I don't really remember much about the pile other than the, the excitement afterwards and just celebrating with the, with the team. Yeah, I love looking at the picture uh, of everyone from on the field that day because Augie's sitting there in, in his yeah. scooter and it, it just looks so, so strange that, that that's happening. What was that like for you guys, uh, you know, for him having, uh, you know, to, to be hobbled like that throughout the, the second half of the season? He might have been hobbled, but didn't definitely didn't affect his mind or his or his mindset or his attitude. I can promise you that. Um, it, it really didn't bother us all. It actually kept us probably at bay from him having to sit down during the game. Uh, there was a point in, in the regional part where, let's just say, Augie was Augie, would get up out of his chair to get his point across and would hobble on one leg down to the end of the dugout to where he he would let that player know that that's not how we do things. And he would hobble back. So he didn't lose much of anything other than maybe a first step or second step. Uh, but it was just, it's just something fun to think about. And we sort of, again, we were a very kind of carefree team where we just, it was, it was kind of a, it was a fun thing for us. Whatever we took on that year was just made to have fun with it. And, um, you know, Hoggy being in that scooter, it, um, <laughs> sort of wraps it up. <laughs> We, we didn't get to see it in that game because uh, it was USC that was a little more mad at the umpires than than, than you guys. But did uh, did he ever like roll that out onto the field to argue with umpires? Well, it doesn't it doesn't go up steps very well. I can tell you that much. So he was more <laughs> of a ground or a dugout level back and forth, or just get out and hobble at you. Okay. Uh, but <laughs> he definitely did not drive that out there um, <laughs> to argue any calls, but. I will say it was pulled out from under the bus at times used as a celebration tool uh, amongst the team when he wasn't around. And I say that because it was fun for us to do. And, and it was just, you know, just, again, just us being us that, that year and finding a way to have fun with it. That is uh, that that's awesome. When, when you think back to, to just Augie's influence on your career, I mean, just what what did he do um, that, that sticks with you today or, or, or that helps you as a coach uh, now? If, if anybody knew Augie and everybody knows the true Augie, I mean, that, that guy is the is one guy that brings it each and every day. There's no, there's not a day that goes by. He doesn't show up with the same energy and attitude, ready to coach, ready to teach and and ready to keep it simple. I mean, it was a, a very high intensity and high expectation more than anything. And um, just making sure we were doing things at such a high level that nothing else mattered. And it was a fundamental, fundamental approach to where uh, it, we were very good at the fundamentals. And that's all we really did. And, you know, we had a lot of time to practice it. We weren't varying from that formula. It was going to be fundamentals each and every day. And we were going to be really, really good at it. And if we weren't, we were told so, or we were reminded in other ways. But it was just his mindset of just teaching the game and, and just being an amazing teacher. Now, granted, he was on the other side with the position players, but just um, the, the mindset of the atmosphere in the dugout, on the field, and just expectations. The, um, you know, the, the USC baseball office right now, you, you have you and, and Jason Gill, who, who also played at Fullerton, although wasn't on this team. Uh, he was a grad and, manager. 
Oh, he was he was the grad manager. Yes, his, his yeah. playing career had ended. I mean, yeah. Uh, so and, and then you have Gabe uh, Alvarez, who who's of course playing at USC in this game. Uh, you know, do you guys ever, uh, you know, did, do, do you ever remind Gabe about that, or, or is this kind of like something you guys have agreed to is off off limits? Well, I I try and I try not to bring it up. <laughs> Nobody wants to bring it up. I don't want to be that guy. But it's funny how some of the guys on the team now will bring that up occasionally um, just to have some fun with us. But no, it is definitely never it's never brought up on my end to to poke a little fun. Um, Every now and then something will come across our desk or email and we'll kind of think back. But again, you look at Gabe's career, three time All-American and did what he did professionally. And now he's continued in this game. And it's pretty impressive what he's done as well. Absolutely. And I just think it's amazing that the three of you were all in Omaha on this one, one afternoon together 20 years yeah. ago. Yeah, that's and, and having played with Coach Gill, Jason Gill in 94, and then having him uh, you know, as part of the staff in 95, there, there's that. And I mean, only so many people remember what Rosenblatt was nowadays. But, you know, having that that time on the field together with with us three um, and then our our volunteer right now is um Bobby Andrews, who's also a champion, national championship winner in 2004. So you have four guys that have been in the field in a national championship game, which is pretty impressive and hard to find. Absolutely. And we're, uh, we're going to be eager to, once everything gets back to normal and, and USC gets back onto the field, to see where, where you guys are able to take that. Because you had some momentum uh, in, in this first season uh, with, uh, with you and, and Jason Gill, uh, joining the staff, and of course, Gabe has been there for a little while. But y- you guys had to feel pretty good about the the direction of the Trojans this breeze, this season. Yeah, and coach and Coach Gill says it all the time. I mean, this this team has set the standard now moving forward, which is nice, which is the expectation level and 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 the sacrifice that they're going to need to 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 put together a winning team. Uh, yeah, we were very impressed. We were very excited. Uh, the guys were, were all about winning, right? And, and to win, everybody knows there's that formula of work, and there's a lot of people that want to win and want to work. And what was going to separate us was going to be doing it each and every day. And to, the, and to their credit, like all successful teams, the guys, the guys did it. And they showed up every day with the same passion and excitement. And, and I think that's why we were in the place we were going into the conference. And um, whether it's this year or next year, we're, we're, we're excited to be uh, – be a part of this and, and bring it back. Well, Ted, we really appreciate you taking the time to join us here on the podcast today to uh, to look back at this this 95 game. You know, it's unfortunate that the the season has left us in the position that we're in, but we're, we really appreciate you uh, taking the time to 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 take this trip down memory lane with us. <laughs> I appreciate it, guys. Thank you. Thank you again to Ted Silva for joining us here on the Baseball America College Podcast. Really great to uh, to have him on to break down what was a, a pretty exciting game. Joe and I both watched this game on Tuesday uh, at around the same time. Uh, you might have seen me tweeting about it. Um, I uh, I have I have time on my hands to do things like watch 25 year old baseball games and tweet about them. So I did it, and uh, you know it was a it was a fun watch. You know the game started very quickly. Mark Kotze homers and the in the first inning and USC answers in the second inning and they're trading some early blows. And, and then, you know, Fullerton kind of takes control uh, as, as Ted Silva kind of settles into the game in the middle of innings and, and they're able to jam on the gas again late. And, and to, um, 
run away with the game a little bit and uh, leave very little drama for the end of the game. And then as, as Joe noted, they, they finish it up with uh, an all-timer in terms of the dog pile uh, there at Rosenblatt Stadium. So Joe, just what were your thoughts when, when you actually got to, to watch this game in, in complete? It was, you know, when the first couple innings go the way they did and the ball is just flying out of there and, you know, Jeff Jenkins hits one to the moon and Mark Kotze has got a couple home runs. I, I knew the final score was just, and I do air quotes on just uh, 11 to five. But then I, I had like a second thought where like, wait a minute, maybe that, maybe I have that score wrong. Maybe this is, you know, going to be one of these 14 to 11 type things. And so I think what was really interesting was kind of, and we talked to, to Ted about this, just the way he was able to kind of settle in. And it, it struck me that that was up until really, I mean, up until the, the mid, you know, late 2000s, and especially when the bats changed, um, you know, 10 years ago or so, that was really kind of the way pitching in the co- at the college level worked um, in, in a lot of ways. And you heard him mention, I knew I wasn't coming out of the game anytime soon. And that maybe in today's world, that's still the case, but you could definitely see a scenario in today's world in, in what would now be game three of the championship series, uh, a pitcher like a Ted Silva, even as accomplished as he is, not really lasting very long in that game. Part of that is just because we have different attitudes now about arm care and, and things of that nature, but also just because, um, you know, coaches at all levels of baseball are going to bullpens earlier and more often. But I say, so I say all that to say, that was kind of of the time, though, and not just because we as a, as a baseball community were more uh, lenient on starting pitchers just going deep in games, but that was also just the way college baseball worked. You were going to give up runs. It didn't matter how good you were. Um, there are a lot of all-time great pitchers who went on to become uh, great big leaguers whose college numbers at first blush don't, don't really blow you away. That's just because it was an offensive game, and certainly at that time. Um, and so – you, you kind of even knew in the moment, and I w- as I was watching it, not knowing Ted Silva's, I knew he got the win in the game, so I knew he was going to go five. Um, I didn't know how deep he was going to go, though, but even just knowing that minimal information in that moment as I was watching it, I kind of inherently knew, like, okay, they're, they're still going to push him here, though, even though he's given up these runs. And USC ended up going to the bullpen fairly early, but it just felt very mid-'90s college baseball that, you know, he's taken on water a little bit, and both sides are taking on water, but they, they kind of keep – trying to stretch the game out a little bit and keep their starters in there because that's just kind of what you had to do. You had to be prepared that your starter might go, might throw 110 pitches in five innings and give up six runs. And that might actually not be too bad. Um, It was really kind of about surviving the game in a lot of ways, especially on Rosenblatt's day where the ball was just jumping. Um, You just had to know that was something that could happen. And um, he did that well. And USC, to a certain degree, did that well. I mentioned Seth Etherton, who went on to become um, one of the best pitchers in college baseball, was one of the more famous examples of a guy leaving money on the table after his junior year to come back for a senior year and really dominate his senior year. Um, and so he wasn't that yet, um, but still a really talented pitcher. And, and he settled down the game for USC a little bit and kind of got it into more of a little rhythm. Um, but those first two innings were exactly what I remember from watching the college world series as a kid. And um, I don't remember this game as a kid. I was, I was too young for that, but, but the game hadn't changed that much five, six, seven years down the road from what we saw in this game in 95. 
Yeah, this isn't Gorilla Ball yet, but it's getting close and it showed. And, you know, I, it was it was kind of jarring for me as someone that, that's watched baseball in Omaha in the last decade. Like that. Oh, yeah. This is like when people complain about how the ball doesn't fly at TD Ameritrade. This is what they're talking about. They want this. And uh, I did not particularly care for it. It was it was a lot. And I, you know, Ted Silva was an All-American and here he is just like getting ripped all over the yard at times it felt like. And, you know, I'm I don't know. That's that's not the kind of baseball I particularly want to watch. You know, I understand everyone has has their different aesthetics that that they're looking for. Uh, That ain't that ain't what I want. Uh, So that was that was jarring, first of all. Uh, I was also you know, you're right, Joe, there's no chance that probably, you know, I I think that if that is happening today, uh, Etherton might have come into the game for USC in the first inning. Uh, or at least in the second inning, like th- there was there was a long leash, a much longer leash than you would expect in a winner take all game on both sides. Uh, you know, Silva might have gotten some longer leash just because he was who he was, and, and you know, if you have that kind of guy, even today, he's gonna get a little bit more leash. Uh, was he gonna go seven uh, in today's world? Probably not like that. Uh, but I did the the going to Mark Kotze, uh, regardless of how many runs they were up with two innings to play, like that did look very familiar. Uh, you know, you just gotta hand the ball off to to the best guy at some point and, and let him let him take you home, and uh, that that is exactly what Augie did, and, and so that looked familiar. But much of the rest of this game did not look all that familiar. I did love the Jeff Jenkins home run though. I mean, that is. That that was glorious. Uh, that was that was, that was, a, that was uh, incredible. Out of out of the entire ballpark. Yeah, that was definitely as someone who grew up uh, watching a team that played in the NL Central at the time in the NL Central against Jeff Jenkins Brewers. That swing was very familiar to me. Like that, I mean, that is the same swing that he had his entire career. It's so funny because speaking of things that have changed a little bit, I remember Jeff Torborg was the uh, former big league manager. Jeff Torborg was the, uh, the color guy on this broadcast with uh, Sean McDonough, ESPN. Sean McDonough uh, was the, the at CBS at the time. Then CBS the play, yes. yes. Um, but Jeff Torborg was the, the analyst and he talked about how there's, you know, Jeff Jenkins gets criticized a little bit for over swinging and swinging too hard, which is definitely a very nineties criticism of an, an offensive player. Um, that you probably wouldn't hear today, especially with Jeff Jenkins hitting 23 home runs that season. If you've got a college player hitting the ball that far, I get I get that it's a different game. But if you've got a college player hitting the ball that far and hitting 23 homes a year, home runs a year, no one is going to criticize how he swings the bat. Yeah, no, I mean, like, uh, that that's what Joey Gallo does, right? And, and you know, Jeff Jenkins... Swinging from his heels, never getting cheated, and he connected, and it went a long way. Uh, that was that was very impressive. But you know the 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 one of the things that that struck me watching that game was just how good Mark Kotze is in in that game. And you hear a lot about how good Mark Kotze is. Was Mark Kotze the greatest college baseball player of all time? Like he he's certainly on a short list. And you know, th- that was a, more of a topic of discussion a couple of years ago uh, in Brendan McKay's junior year, because McKay is also thought of as one of these 
these all-time players and and watching Katze, you know, do his thing on, on the biggest stage. That was that was incredibly impressive. Just his two home runs and then him coming on to to finish the game and he's in absolute control the the whole time he's on the mound and uh, you know, just now to he- hear Ted Silva talk about just how how Mark Katze was their Superman, you know, I mean, it's it's easy to see how how that that was the case and and, and how you know Fullerton must have felt so confident uh, anytime Katze was at the plate or or when he went on the mound and, and they turned the ball over to him. So I went back and uh, on that note, I went back and uh, this will be a little bit of a plug for one of our books. I re- went back and read Jim Callis, uh, formerly of, of Baseball America. I read his uh, game story in Head of the Class, which, uh, by the way, if you're looking for some quarantine reading, Head of the Class by Baseball America, available now. Uh, and so there were, there were some nuggets in there. Uh, the game story is obviously largely centered on, on Katze. And what I came away, actually, the thing that struck me most is that it, in, in light of the way the ball jumps out of Rosenblatt and this era of, of um, offense, and they, they made reference on the broadcast several times to this being the most offensive College World Series ever by, you know, however many metrics it was. And yet in Callis's game story, he references that Katze has been in the middle of everything for this team. And then in recounting what uh, he has done, he mentions that in wins over Stanford and Tennessee, he sacrificed bunted to... <laughs> to move runners along to create runs. It's and so <laughs> I know Augie Garrido was, was at it very much at it in the mid nineties at, at, at Cal State Fullerton. Well, so I, he on had that Mark note, like, sack bunting. In, in this game where I think there were six home runs, uh, at one point Fullerton bunts two batters in a row. And now the joke is on me because they scored, but like, <laughs> it was just like, kind of amazing like you know at one point the broadcast even references my favorite earl weaver quote that uh you know the and now now i can't think of it but that you know the 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 three-run homer is is you know the best the best thing in baseball basically and you know if you play for one run that's all you'll get and here we are, balls flying out of the yard. Arcadze hits a three-run homer in the first inning, and, and Augie Garrido's still out here playing for one run at times. And uh, you know that was that was kind of remarkable to me. Again, a little bit jarring uh, watching it 25 years later. And uh, uh, you know it, it is what it is. But you know the the juxtaposition of of that with like the very leading edge of what is going to become the most offensive era in college baseball history. Uh, what was pretty remarkable to me. And I don't know, I, I enjoyed watching all of this, uh, you know, especially knowing what, what is to come in college baseball and, and how routine some of this is going to be, but it's not there yet. And, and, and watching Katze uh, just do what he did in general, I, I, I thought was uh, one of my favorite things about the game. One other thing that I, I noted in, in Callis' story is he talks about, you know, how some are considering this this Fullerton team to be in the conversation for greatest college baseball teams of all time. And, and some of the metrics are there. They were a one seed that won the national title. And, and in his postgame interview, Augie notes that that's the first time that had happened. And I suppose we have to take him at his word on that. And, um, you know, they, they lost fewer than 10 games. Like the final record was 57 and nine or something like that. And so by those metrics, and you have arguably the greatest college baseball player of all time on your roster, sure. But, and we asked Ted Silva about this, that doesn't necessarily track with when you like look at the players on this team and that's not me dogging their talent. That's not me being disrespectful, but 
it's just not the team that you would expect to really have been able to put up that record and also to be considered among the greatest. Cause you've got, you've got Kotze and you've got Ted Silva, who is, is a known name as a great college pitcher, but it's not, you know, a, a roster full of guys that you would recognize if you're just mostly a MLB fan and someone who maybe follows the draft. It, it wasn't that. I mean, Callis notes in the story that the, their, their highest drafted guy was an eighth round pick. And of course that's misleading because Katze was the first overall pick the next year. But for that draft, eighth round was as high as it got for Fullerton. And yet that's a team that's considered, you know, I suppose if Callis wrote it, we have to, you know, we have to allow for the fact that at that time it was being considered maybe the greatest team of all time in college baseball. Well, I think that's very interesting because, you know, we just had a team in Vanderbilt when that we were talking about, was this the best ever? Or is it in the discussion at least? And all of the things that it was like, well, Vanderbilt's the first to do this since X or the first to do this since Y, none of them were this team. Uh, you know, one of the ones that stands out is that they had the most wins since Wichita State in 89. Uh, so, you know, so obviously that Wichita State team had, had happened and, and maybe that's one of the ones they were being compared against. Uh, but, you know, that's that that's something that that this Fullerton team didn't have is that, you know, Wichita State won 60 games that year. And, you know, so that is interesting. I, I don't know if looking back now, we would consider this Fullerton team one of those those all-time teams. I think now more commonly you hear Katze talked about as an all-time player rather than the, this being an all-time team. I think some of the LSU teams that are about to follow get talked about that way. Um, you know, there, then there are some teams this century that get talked about that way. So I you know, it, it is interesting, though, to, to look at that and, and see all the things that this Fullerton team did. And, you know, Augie mentioned that on the broadcast, too, with, with Michelle Tafoya. You know, that was one of the first things out of his mouth postgame is that we did something that nobody had ever done before. And, and that's win as a one seed. And, and he was kind of trying to make it out to be like, you know, we had to prove that it could happen. Well, like, I mean, you're, you're the number one overall seed. Of course it could happen. But like to his point, it was unprecedented at the time. So. Uh, you know, it, it's uh, it was an interesting look into some college baseball history. And then, of course, uh, we, we have to address the, the scooter. We obviously did that with, with Ted. Uh, but, Joe, the the scooter for me, you know, anytime I, I remember this team and this, you know, I, I can see the team picture because Augie has the scooter and it just looks so strange. Like you have this very normal uh, team picture after you win a championship, you see those all the time, and, and they're very unmemorable usually. But this one has Augie Garrido sitting on his motorized scooter, and, and you know the the story behind his his blown Achilles, and uh, you know how he had to how he was stuck in the dugout is uh, is kind of an incredible one that 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 lends this you know a little a little something more. Yeah, I'd kind of forgotten that that was the case. And I actually made a note in my notebook here that I'm looking at that I, <laughs> that Augie and, and Mike Gillespie and, you know, Skip was was a coach who was kind of was very stone faced in the dugout. And he, you know, was always kind of looked a little unflappable. And so that's just kind of part of his persona. But, you know, I remember making an, or I made a note here in my notebook that said, like, you know, Gillespie and Garrido look so relaxed and, and Augie is sitting down, which like a lot of coaches you just don't see coaches sitting very often. You know, Mike Martin famously 
you know, sit in the dugout, but most coaches don't. And then it came to be because Augie Carino didn't have a choice but to sit down. So I'd kind of forgotten that. And I found that out later when they showed the scooter. But, um, but yeah, there's a little bit of, I'm actually looking at the picture, the team picture now, and Augie almost looks sad to be sitting in the scooter in a way. Like the rest of the team is, looks very celebratory and has their number ones up and all that. And Augie's just sitting kind of stone-faced in the scooter, almost as if he's, uh, upset that he has to be in the scooter, which I guess you can, you can understand that at least a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, it's a, uh, it's a strange situation. And, and the, the other thing about Augie with this, this title is that was his third. He became uh, just the second coach uh, to win a title in three different decades by winning this one. And of course he would add uh, another one with, with Texas, but the, it was, um, it was an incredible team, a really fun game. And I think if you haven't had a chance to, to go back and watch this game, I would encourage you to do so. It's there on YouTube. You, you have the time right now to, to take a few hours and, and to watch this game. Um, you know, we really enjoyed it. And, and hopefully the, the rest of you guys who, who did do it, uh, who, who were following along with me on Twitter on Tuesday afternoon, uh, hopefully you enjoyed it as well. We are going to keep doing one of these a week for the foreseeable future. Uh, next up, Joe, why don't you tell them what we have selected uh, for, for next week? All right. So uh, first of all, trigger warning for Ole Miss fans. We are going to be taking a look at the 2018 Oxford Regional Final, uh, Tennessee Tech, Ole Miss, um, you know, obviously Tennessee Tech was one of the great stories of the 2018 college baseball season. Um, they, you know, just a, a, a team that transcended throughout the course of the season, they went from good team OVC favorite to a really good team could make some noise in the postseason. to wait a minute. This is one of probably the greatest mid-major teams ever. Um, at the or low major, you know, depending on where you want to file the OVC. Oh, it's it wasn't, low major. Yeah, and it wasn't, you know, I just I typically use mid-major as a blanket term, but but my point I'm making is that in the non-coastal rice when they were in the whack of the non those teams, uh, you know, this Tennessee Tech team has to be considered one of the best at that level, and um, they they kind of kept proving themselves as the season went on and went on and went on, and lo and behold, they get through a road regional, they win game six and game seven against Ole Miss, uh, give Texas one heck of a fight in the Austin Super Regional. Um, so we're going to be watching that regional final game, which I think is interesting on a number of levels. For one, it's just kind of the culmination of the Tennessee Tech story. Uh, beyond that, it also was Tennessee Tech winning a game in a in a way that maybe you didn't assume they could win a game. Uh, this is a very offensive team. They won the first game in the regional final 15-5. to and I assume a lot of that was because Mike Bianco and his staff had kind of started to prepare for the fact they were going to have to play one more game. And so maybe they were some of those runs were off the back of the bullpen. I don't really remember. But uh, it was a tight game, this regional final. And Tennessee Tech won it with pitching. And that's not exactly how you would have expected them to do so. And, of course, I, you know, I say trigger warning for Ole Miss fans. But you could even in the moment, this was a, a traumatic thing for Ole Miss fans because, you know, they just had to win one game to move on. And. This was a good Ole Miss team, the capable of getting to Omaha, and they, they had it spoiled. And as this game moves on, you can just kind of feel the air coming out of the balloon at Swayze. 
and then obviously uh, Tennessee Tech ends up dogpiling. So it's uh, going to be a good trip down memory lane for me just because I enjoyed this Tennessee Tech team. I've talked about it on the podcast before. I saw this Tennessee Tech team early in the season and kind of had an inkling. Now, I never expected this, but I kind of had an inkling that this team might transcend just being a good OVC champion, and that turned out to be the case. So I take a little pride in this team, and I'm 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 excited to watch this again just to kind of live through that particular team one more time. I am interested in seeing this game. I have never watched it. I, that year, was at the Gainesville Regional, I guess, while this game was happening. And, you know, this is all happening on draft night as well, which uh, gives it maybe a little something extra. Uh, If I'm I'm recalling this correctly, I know one of those games was happening while the draft was happening, and I believe it's this one. Um, so that's, uh, that's a little something interesting. And then I saw Tennessee tech in that Austin super regional. So I caught them the the next week when they were given Texas, all Texas could handle. Uh, but they, uh, you know, and, and it was, they were a very interesting team to be around. They did not at any time during that super seem like they were overwhelmed by what was in front of them. And some of that's because they'd been in regionals the year before and won a game in Tallahassee, upsetting Florida state in in the first game of regional. Uh, But some of that is just the team was old and they knew how good they were. And, you know, they, they just played with a lot of confidence all season long. So this will be a good one to look back on. Uh, I guess as long as you're not an Ole Miss fan for for, the, for Ole Miss fans, I guess we'll catch you next week uh, when, when we go uh, pick a new game. But uh, joining us next week on the podcast uh, to talk about this game will be Coach Matt Braga, who at the time was with Tennessee Tech and now, of course, is with Rice. Uh, he, he made the move to Rice following that 2018 season. So we will uh, be back here in in a week's time at the end of next week to, to revisit that 2018 regional or Oxford regional championship game. Uh, we will be back next week on the podcast before then, however. So if you're, if you're looking at the BA podcast feed and hopefully you're subscribed on Apple podcasts, Stitcher, Google play, Spotify, wherever you're getting your podcasts, we're there. And if you're looking at your your podcast feed early next week and you see an episode drop and it clearly has nothing to do with the, the Tennessee Tech game uh, that we're talking about now, that is because we will be back here with two podcasts next week. We are expecting the Division One Council on Monday to announce its decision as to whether they will be granting extra eligibility to spring sports athletes as a result of the season getting canceled. So Joe and I will be back either Monday evening or Tuesday uh, sometime, depending on when the decision is announced, to discuss that and the repercussions from it, because there will be a lot of repercussions uh, for programs around the country, no matter what the Division One Council decides, whether they decide to give eligibility relief to every student athlete, every spring student athlete uh, as Division Two and AIA. Uh, NJCAA, as they all have done, or whether uh, Division One Council opts for just seniors getting another year of eligibility, or if they opt to give no relief at all. Regardless of what the decision is, we will be back here uh, to discuss it early next week, and then we'll have this uh, Oxford 2018 Oxford Regional Final look back uh, later in the week. 
Before we say goodbye uh, on this episode, however, Joe and I have been promising for a little while some food talk. So if you have come here just for the college baseball talk, uh, we, we have ended that. And we, we are now going to talk a little bit of fast food. Joe, before the season got canceled, was in California. He had In-N-Out for the first time. And we have been teasing an In-N-Out review from Joe uh, for the better part of two weeks now, more than two weeks now. Uh, and the time has come, Joe. Tell us what you think of In-N-Out. Uh, really good. Really, really enjoyed it. Uh, to clarify, it was actually my second time. I had In-N-Out in Frisco, Texas a couple of years ago. But I felt like this was my first true In-N-Out experience because it was in California. Um, you know, it was in, in I stopped in In-N-Out in Culver City. Um, you know, just heart of In-N-Out country. And uh, so I felt like this was kind of my spiritually my first In-N-Out experience as opposed to in, in reality. Um, I knew what more to expect this time too. So like I was really kind of, and I remember the first time I got it uh, in Frisco, it was more just like, well, it's dinner time and I need to eat something. And oh, look, the In-N-Out's right here. It was kind of that type of deal. Whereas this, this trip, I was like, I'm going to In-N-Out. I'm going to have this In-N-Out experience. So um, I thought it was really good. Um, I think it's a little so I'll compare it to Whataburger, which is still my my reigning and defending champion. Uh, so take that, Mike Rooney. Um, I think it's different from what Whataburger is trying to do. So like In and Out, what I like a lot about it, it's few frills. There's not a lot of variety on the menu, and I think that's a feature, not a bug for for In and Out, at least in my mind. You don't have to scour a big long menu. You don't have to make a ton of decisions. And I know In-N-Out has this big, big thing, the, the secret menu, and you can order things a certain way. But but for, most, for the most part, you're just ordering basically how many patties you want on your burger, whether or not you want onions, um, stuff like that. And so I think that's great. It's a no-frill situation. You're basically just ordering your burger and fries. And it is a very enjoyable, greasy burger. And I say that like a, a spread on it, um, that I thought was outstanding. I really liked what it brought to the table, kind of gave it a little bit of zing. So I liked that a lot. So just very simple. It was a great experience. The difference though, see, I think what works, what I want from In-N-Out and what I want from Whataburger are two opposite things that I think I just want in different scenarios. For In-N-Out, I do like how the simplicity of that and how it's just no frills and it is what it is. With Whataburger, though, you can really roll up to a Whataburger, and you've got burgers, but you've also got the A1 Thick and Hearty Burger that has A1 sauce on it, the Chop House Cheddar Burger that has like a creamy sauce on it and diced onions and a different kind of cheese on it, and um, you've got chicken strip sandwiches with barbecue sauce or buffalo sauce, not to mention, you know, standard chicken tenders, and they've got, you know, wraps and, and things like that. So when I go to Whataburger, it's kind of like I want a specialty burger. Like I love the Chop House Cheddar Burger, one of my favorite fast food items that's ever been on any fast food menu. So when I go to Whataburger, I want that most often. I want a specialty menu item. What kind of burger do they have right now? Do I want a patty melt? Do I want the A1 burger? Do I want the Chop House? Whereas with In-N-Out, I just want a burger, just a standard burger that's going to taste great and then to move on. And so they're doing two very different things, and that's why things, and that's why I think they can kind of coexist in my mind. I don't think it necessarily has to be that one is better than the other. I prefer Whataburger. Uh, part of that is emotional. I am a Texan after all, 
Uh, but I think they can coexist in the same world. I, I don't think I have to be very definitive about because I love Whataburger, I can't do In-N-Out. And if it were the opposite, I don't think I'd be in a world where I'd say I love In-N-Out, so I can't do Whataburger. Um, I think they can really coexist because in my mind, what they bring to the table and do best are two very different things. And I think that's great. So I, you know, we'll get into this fast food bracket we looked at and In-N-Out makes a deep run. And part of that is because I really enjoyed my experience. Part of that was because their side of the bracket was a little weaker. Um, but I thought it was great. I loved In-N-Out. I look forward to getting out there again at some point and, and having it again. Obviously, now I live in a place here in Durham that doesn't have Whataburger or In-N-Out. So that's kind of a bummer. But um, I'm looking forward to my next experience. That's for sure. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, the... Uh... The In-N-Out experience, I think, is more akin to the Shake Shack experience, than, which I know Joe, Joe told me off-pot he has not had, than the Whataburger. Uh, you know, I think the Shake Shack menu is a little uh, slimmer. It's a little little more what you're getting at, at In-N-Out. Uh, Whataburger is, is, a, is a much bigger menu, trying to be a little more something for everyone, which I appreciate. Uh, but they, they are a little different in, in that regard. Uh, now, we also mentioned on our last pod this fast food bracket that, that Joe just referenced again. Uh, and if you're looking for it, you can find it on my Twitter. Um, and I don't know where to tell you where else to find it besides that because the bracket itself doesn't have any information about who put it together other than that, quote, restaurants and seating determined by an audience vote. End quote. And as we mentioned last time, the seating is absolutely awful and we just have to live with it. That That is what it is. Um, Joe, did we say who won the bracket I put together with my girlfriend last time? I think you I think you teased it a little. I think you mentioned it. I'm pretty confident. OK, you mentioned it. well, I guess we'll, we'll just mention that now. Wawa was the champion. Now, I date. A girl who grew up in Philadelphia, so that there is there is that bias coming through. Uh, just be upfront about that. Um, but also, Wawa is legitimately really good. Uh, if I hadn't been putting it together jointly, uh, my final four was Wawa, Torchies, In and Out, Shake Shack, and I'll be honest, by myself, would Torchies have won? Maybe that it it would it would so very close Wawa versus Torchies matchup. Uh, in a semifinal, uh, Joe, you have now filled this out. You had not done so last week, uh, and you came to uh, a different conclusion. Yeah, so I've got Whataburger winning the thing, which I guess isn't a surprise for anyone. Uh, and that's why. So I thought about the seating, and it is like uh, indefensible in some places. But the seating almost doesn't matter just because you're just going to pick the place you like the most. And so you've got some situations here where like, as I look at this thing, like there are some places I just haven't been that are facing off against places that I have been once and the place I've been once wins because I can actually speak to that. So, and then the minute that place ends up going head to head with a place I like, they're just going to lose. And so Torchy's an example you gave, I mean, Torchy's being a, a Texas institution myself, I mean, that's a 12 seed that I also have in the final four. So I almost think like in some ways the seeding doesn't really matter just because we're going to pick, I mean, it could mean that two things butt up against each other earlier in the bracket than you would have otherwise wanted, but we were always going to run the risk of that. So I agree that it's indefensible. I just, as I thought about it more, I'm just, maybe it doesn't really matter too much but anyway long story short i've got i've got whataburger winning this thing my final was whataburger and raisin canes 
Raising Cane's came from a very weak bottom right quadrant. And some of that, I say weak, you know, a lot of these places I just hadn't been in the bottom right corner. No, I'll say it. It's objectively weak. It has, it has Skyline as a seven. Like, yeah, yeah. Skyline is a, is a top half of this bracket. And I'll bet a lot of you people listening right now don't even know what Skyline Chili is. It's like it's spaghetti. A, it, yeah, it will. No. Okay. So it's, <laughs> it's chili on top of spaghetti. It's Cincinnati chili. And you've probably never heard of that either. And that's because basically only people in southwestern Ohio and like the surrounding area like know about this or have skylines. And somehow that's a seven seat. I, I, I it's again, it's mind blowing. Yeah. I, I had a, an upset in the bottom right quadrant. I had El Pollo Loco. I, I just really like El Pollo Loco. So like they take down two seed Taco Bell and some of the seating here just doesn't appear to be ubiquity. Like t- Taco Bell is a two seed subway is a, as a three seed five guys as a one seed, like, Woof. I like five guys. Don't be wrong. I'm not dogging five guys. That feels like a four to me. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so there were some I had some upsets over there in the bottom right quadrant. And that's part of how Canes gets through. But I do legitimately like Raising Canes. I I like their chicken. The sauce to me is the key at Raising Canes. Love that sauce. The fries are also really good. And that was the other thing I meant to mention on In-N-Out, by the way. One of the other things that puts Whataburger over the top of In-N-Out for me, too, is that the In-N-Out fries are just legitimately mediocre. Um, and that's the knock against In-N-Out. Even people who grew up with it and, and think of it in the way that they do think of it highly admit that the fries are just substandard um, at In-N-Out. I found that to be the case. They were good. Don't get me wrong. I ate every last fry in the basket. Um, but uh, Whataburger fries I, I find to be superior. So that's another thing. But um, Kane's fries, good. So, you know, I had them in, in my final. My final four, for, for just to get it on the record, is Whataburger in the top left, Torchies bottom left. In and out, top right. See, in and out, final four. Some of that was, again, some of that was who they came up with, but I up against, but I really did enjoy in and out. And then Raising Canes was the last final four out there. So Canes and Whataburger in the final, then Whataburger as the champion. Yeah, so I, it's, uh, it was an entertaining way to pass. I don't know how long it took us to fill this out. And then me to fill in the bracket took way longer because uh, I was playing with uh, – <laughs> with a photo editing tool for a while. Uh, but, you know, it was, uh, you're cooped up. I, I found it to be an, an entertaining activity. I assume you did as well, Joe. Yeah, it was uh, it was a lot of fun. I, I went much simpler. I printed out a blank bracket, um, which was a, a feat in and Joe of itself. who has a printer at home. Well, yeah, that's what I was going to say. That's actually a feat in and of itself because um, uh, my fiance and I have had this printer um for a while uh, we never actually got it hooked back up and online at the last house we lived in um and then one day i came home and my fiance had had it all set up so uh, that was a surprise to me because i had tried to get this thing it's not that i didn't try at the previous house i tried to get this thing back online and it just would not do it um so i don't know what kind of black magic she pulled to get this thing working but anyway printed out this bracket filled it in by hand uh, to fill it in. So um, it probably took me longer to fill in the names than it took me to, to, to get through it because I, I, I'm this way too when I fill out an NCAA tournament bracket. Um, I try not to overthink it because like the first indication to me is usually more right. I'm not saying it's always right, but it's usually more right for me. So I tried to actually make a point to go through it rather quickly. And as I've gone back through it a couple of times, I don't really regret anything. So I guess I, I, I guess I did okay in the end. 
Was there anything, I haven't actually seen yours, you've seen mine, was there anything about mine that you found to be particularly objectionable, besides the fact that Whataburger went out in, like, the second round? Yeah, I mean, Whataburger, when you had Panda Express taking down Whataburger? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I just think that's a case of, um, I obviously disagree with that. I mean, I like Panda Express. I think that's just a taste thing. I mean, that's the other thing about this bracket, too, is, like, it's a very apples and oranges comparison, <laughs> Panda Express and Whataburger. Yes. You know, like you're not just rolling up to one of those and being like, oh, well, the Whataburger line is all the way around the building. Like, let's go to Panda <laughs> Express. Like, no, that conversation is not really probably happening. Um, so that's kind of part of it, too. And, um, you know, I actually thought for the most for the most part, I mean, I think a lot of the differences you and I had are just kind of taste wise. I mean, I don't have a ton of Wawa experience. I, I liked Wawa, though. I had them in the Sweet 16. Um, they were doomed from the start, though, because they're in the same quadrant as Whataburger. So that was always just going to be – they were always they were doomed for an early exit uh, regardless. Um, but, no, I, my hot take on regional fast food has always been that it's it's all pretty good, and you like what you like. And I think that is borne out uh, by the differences in, in yours and in my bracket. Yeah, I some of the I, – I did get some feedback on Twitter that was – uh, a lot of people being upset that Canes went out um, before the Final Four. They they lost in the Sweet 16 to Taco Bell, and you know I, I don't know Canes is it's fine. It's it's totally fine. I like eating it, but you know I I, I like eating Taco Bell too. So uh, I'm I'm here to agree with you on that, Joe. That uh, you know most of the food uh, that that's here in this bracket, I can complain about the way it's been seated, uh, and obviously I have, but you know most of it. You know, if you uh, if you give it to me, I'll eat it and uh, I'll mostly be happy about it. I mean, this isn't like a super hot take just because like, I, I mean, for you, they only got to the second. I, I have now pulled up your bracket, but they only got to the second round. So like this isn't really like a, a huge uh, bone to pick here. But um, did Boston Market beat Culver's just because you have never. What is really... Culver's? OK, so there you go. <laughs> All right. They are a Midwestern burger chain, I think based in Wisconsin, but we had them in Illinois when I lived in Illinois and, and I. Um, so that kind of explains that, but I aggressively just do not like Boston market. And part of it is it was one of those places when I was a kid that like my parents would, when, when we were kind of devoid of other options, cause I feel like you could get like a, a few different things there and it was kind of almost like cafeteria food in a way. And, um, but it was like, I don't know, healthier is maybe not the right way to put it, but a little more well-rounded than you could get at your typical like fast casual. Cause you got to remember the nineties was kind of before this fast casual boom took off in a way. And so you had fast food and that was about it. And Boston market was kind of a, I guess a nice option that was fast, but not fast food. Um, but we used to go there not all the time, but often enough where I just, uh, I just burned out on it and I didn't really like it to begin with. And so I just, that was one that, that stood out to me as, is Boston Market getting to the second round, which is a which was an upset. Yeah, I um, I can't say I've even eaten at Boston Market that often, but you know it's uh, it's a place I have eaten in Culver's. It's a place I have it, uh, so that, that that is the bind that that existed on on that one. My my one remember, memory of Boston Market is that I remember thinking like it was like Thanksgiving food, <laughs> like they would serve <laughs> like you know cut ham and turkey breast and like rotisserie chicken i just always thought of it as thanksgiving food yeah the other thing about boston market back when you're talking about it like you could kind of trick yourself into thinking you were eating kind of healthy you're like it was still fast but you were eating kind of healthy because it wasn't you weren't necessarily getting fries and it wasn't like some greasy burger um 
So I, I think there was a little bit of that going on back then. But yeah, yeah. Like, like you said, you know, now that Panera exists and, and you know, is as, as ubiquitous as it is, like, I, I wonder how Boston market, I mean, I could look this up, how Boston markets like popularity and share price and everything has, has fared over the, the rise of the, the fast casual restaurant. Yeah, I'm guessing it hadn't been great just because I don't feel like I've seen very many of them. They used to advertise all the time. You know, I don't, I don't see Boston Market ads all that often. Yeah, I'm with you there. So there it is. There's our there's our fast food and fast casual restaurant bracket. Um, that that's our contribution to uh, the third month third month of, of brackets. Um, there's also a bracket running over at BaseballAmerica.com right now that ranks uh, or that has you fill out a bracket based on uh, the best prospects uh, of all time. And so that's a fun one. I would encourage you to to check that out. Well, uh, if you have other brackets you want us to fill out, ideally food-based, um, you know, this is this is me and Joe. Like, let, let's keep it food-based, really here. That's right. Uh, you know, or maybe TV-based. I don't know. Uh, you know, we we've got time, so you know, I'm I'm down to to fill out whatever whatever food bracket you want to send our way. Uh, so you can do that on Twitter. I am at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy B A. Also, you can uh, leave us any baseball questions you have because, you know, we we have the intent to to bring you baseball podcasts throughout the the college baseball hiatus, however long that lasts. Uh, Next week, we're going to go with two podcasts. We'll see how many podcasts we go with uh, on a weekly basis in the future. Joe and I have kind of talked slash joked about just going to two on a week to week basis. We'll, We'll see how that goes. Uh, but in any case, I would encourage you to subscribe to the Baseball America podcast over on your favorite podcasting app. Again, be that Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you're looking for your podcasts. Uh, subscribe, rate, review if you can. We greatly appreciate it, and it helps other people to find the podcast. Uh, also, you know, if you want to leave us suggestions or, or, or questions in in a rating or in a review, excuse me, uh, you know, we we would. Uh, we would love to see them in that forum as well. Uh, so again, we want to thank Ted Silva for coming on the podcast today to talk about that 1995 College World Series championship game. Next week, remember, we will have Matt Braga on to talk about Tennessee Tech and the 2018 Oxford Regional Final. Uh, we will also have earlier in the week a discussion on whatever the Division One Council decides in terms of eligibility for 2020 spring sports athletes. Uh, that that is going to be a more news-centric podcast. Uh, obviously, we'll we'll be trying to bear down uh, on everything that that they decide and what ramifications that has for college baseball, and there will be plenty of them. Uh, so we will see you then. Uh, Thank you guys for listening. Thank you to Ted Silva for joining us today. Thank you to Joe for joining me. As always, I've been Teddy Cahill. We'll talk to you next time on the Baseball America College Podcast.